invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 Timothy 5. And we'll be in verses 3 through 16 today. Uh, I'm going to be preaching, I, I have a part one and a part two here. This is actually two distinct messages. It is not a continuation per se. It's just taking the same passage of Scripture and going in a couple of different directions with it. This week we will stick more to the direct context itself, and next week we're going to take one of the concepts presented within this passage, and we're going to run with it in a little bit of a different direction. So last time we were together, we considered the nature of the local church as a family, intended by God to operate in love, in accountability, and in influence one with another. We emphasize that if church doesn't feel like family, if it doesn't feel like a home away from home, or maybe the home that you don't have at home, if church doesn't feel that way, if, if church isn't a place not of constant agreement, not of constant happiness, but definitely a place of, 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 of fellowship one with another, of spiritual fellowship of one, one with another, of spiritual communion one with another, a place of spiritual safety, a place where you can go and you can interact with one another on a spiritual safe level, on a spiritual level of accountability, on a spiritual level of encouragement, and a spiritual level of growth, on a, spiritual, uh, on a spiritually energizing or, or spiritually edifying level then there's something wrong with your relationship to the church. And this may be the church's problem, or this may be your problem, or it may be a mixture of both, but again, something is wrong. Now today we move on to an interesting case that underscores uh, one of the broader concepts of church philosophy. If the church is a family, then not only will there be implications of the church as a family as it relates to our spiritual relationships. And we spoke about that last week. We spoke about the elements of accountability. We spoke about the elements of, of, of loving one another. We spoke about the elements of unity. So we talked about the spiritual relationship that comes with this regard of us as a family. But there are also implications as it relates to our material connectedness, not just our spiritual connectedness, but our material connectedness. What should the church do when there's a physical need within the context of the church body? Paul is going to give us a specific use case today. And naturally, we'll apply it to that specific use case. But really, the application is going to be able to be broadened well beyond just the specific use case. We see a particular scenario, a particular use case within which Paul will speak, where there was uh, uh, the expectations laid down for physical support within the body of Christ. When that's necessary, when that's appropriate, when it's not necessary, when it's not appropriate. And then it's our privilege to take this philosophy, to take these principles, and to extend them to any number of other levels of church interaction, any other number of, of applications as it relates to the needs of those within the church body. And so we are beginning in verse 3 today. And I'm going to start back in verse 1 for context. The Bible says, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed. So Paul calls upon the church to honor widows, and he uh, speaks specifically of those whom he calls widows indeed. So we see a distinction here made between just widows and those whom he's calling widows indeed. And there's going to be a process of Paul defining what would be a widow indeed. Who would be a widow that we would say this is a responsibility of the church to care for? And that is what we're talking about when we think of that word honor. So within the context of this family emphasis, right, we have the context of uh, treating the elder men as fathers and the elder women as mothers and the, the younger men as brothers and the younger women as sisters with all purity. 
within this context of family, the body is called to care for those who are in need of care. And in this case, we see a widow, one whose husband has died and so has lost the earthly means by which she was supported. And take note of this culturally. Take note of the fact that culturally speaking, it is not as if when a, when, when a, a husband died, the, the wife could say, well, I guess I'm just going to go join the workforce. That did not happen back then, right? There was not the capacity for a woman to just step seamlessly into the workforce and to begin to provide for herself and, uh, if need be, for her children. She couldn't just open, uh, get a job. She couldn't just open a line of credit. She could not function in society in the same way that a man could. So take note of that, that within this scenario, we're talking about a, a circumstance where a woman, now that she does not have a husband, has lost her means of provision. And that's really the idea here. Someone who has lost their means of provision. That's the, that's the context. In this case, we're just talking about a widow in this particular time, in this particular culture. Society did not treat women as they treated men. They did not have, women did not have the same role and so did not share the same rights and freedoms of movement and of economy that men would share. And so this put those widows in a genuinely difficult place. A woman's husband dies and she would either need to marry again or she would have to rely upon her family to provide for her. These were really the only options that she had. Now, as we'll see as we continue, Paul is not invalidating either of these options, that the woman marry again or that she have her family care for her. Rather, Paul is adding a third layer here, a third context, a third way in which this woman could be cared for. She could marry again and so be cared for by another husband. She could have her family care for her and so be taken care of by her sons or grandchildren. Or the church could care for her. And the church could take that responsibility upon themselves. So that women who are truly widows, who are widows indeed, as Paul would say, who have no other means, no other means, no, 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 no direct means by which to get remarried or no other means by which to have family support them, that is where the church steps in, and we'll see that as we continue. And so we're going to understand this idea as Paul defines what is a widow indeed. Now, before we move on to that, however, I'd like to discuss what it means that the church is to honor those who are widows indeed. The word honor here is used 21 times. I apologize. I don't have the uh, Greek font installed, I guess, on, on this. Um, so you see what undergirds the Greek. When I type it in the Greek, that's what it looks like on my keyboard, uh, and then I convert to the Greek. So my apologies for that. That's going to be real distracting. Get used to it. It's going to be there throughout the whole sermon. Um, uh, so I hope it doesn't distract you too much. You say, Pastor, I didn't even notice. So, okay. Um, there's 21 times in the New Testament where we find this word honor. It's the word tamao. It speaks of the idea of reflecting special value or special honor upon a person. Now, there's no member of the body that does not have value, Right? There's no member of the body that does not have honor. In fact, Peter uses the same word that we find here in this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, to speak to this idea. He says in 1 Peter 2, 17, Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. This word is act actually comes up twice within this context. The first time saying, Honor all men. Honor, show care, show distinction, show love unto all men. But then notice he says, honor the king. Well, wait a minute. The king is a man. So if you say honor all men, 
then why should you have to repeat honor the king? Well, because though the king does fall into that purview of all men, by singling out a particular person in authority here, what we see Peter doing is calling them to a special level of attention that relates to his position. Not just the fact that he's a person, but the fact that he is a person in a God-given, God-appointed civil authority position. To this end, we might understand by implication that Peter's exhortation to honor the king be applied very differently than his exhortation to honor all men, right? You give men the honor that is due to them, and of course, men here being mankind, you give people the honor that is due to them as those who are made in the image of God, as those whom God loves. God makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. God causes the rain to fall on the evil and the good. And so I honor all men. I show men and women the respect that is due unto them because they're made in the image of God. Because God loves them. Because Jesus died for them. Now, I don't give them all the same honor that I give the president of the United States. Or that I give a king or a queen or a governor or a mayor. Because they have another position of authority. They have another layer upon which there are unique and particular elements of honor that are due unto them. And they are due unto them according to the scriptures, are they not? And so when Peter says, honor the king, I know that he's saying something different than honor all men. I honor the king because he's made in the image of God. I honor the king because he uh, has, because God loves him and, and Jesus died for his sins. I show him that respect that is due unto him because he's human. And then I add to that the layer of authority, that I honor him because he is a God-appointed civil authority. The same can be said of Paul's exhortation in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, children. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. This command by no means implies that children don't need to grant anyone else honor. Indeed, honor all men. We've already seen from 1 Peter chapter 2 doesn't mean that children don't need to value anyone except their parents. But what it does mean is that by virtue of the unique relationship that a child has to his parents, the parents are entitled by God to a unique measure of honor that other people are not entitled to. My children are, are, are expected to honor me in a way that they are not asked by God to honor others. The same can be said about husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands, right? Not to any husband, not to every husband, but your own husband. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to come across the same concept as it relates to teaching elders in the church. 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Just as the unique, there's a unique relationship between children and their parents or between citizens and their king or between widows indeed and the church, so too there's a unique relationship between the elders of the church and those, and particularly the elders that rule well, and those who have submitted themselves to that elder's leadership. Those elders are entitled to the unique honor of their position, and we'll see when we get there what all of those uniquenesses are of their honor as it relates to their position. And they're not due the position of the honor of a king or the honor of a parent because that's not the position what, that they have. They're due the honor that is due to them as an elder who rules well. And so we see this idea here, honor widows that are widows indeed. 
when there is a widow, and that widow is in a particular need, and that need is not being filled as it ought to be filled, then show her honor, show her value, reflect the value that she has in the way that you treat her, and we'll see what that means as we continue. So Paul says in verse 4, But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for it is good, for that is good and acceptable before God. Paul draws a line of distinction between those widows who ought to be the recipients of this unique honor as widows indeed. And he says that if this widow have in this text children or nephews, other translations have children or grandchildren, the word simply being the idea of offspring or descendants. If a woman have descendants, blood relatives, those who are born of her or who are related to her, then they are the first line of defense. They're the first line of care. And effectively, the idea is this, children, grandchildren, you have been blessed by the care, sacrifice, and effort of your family toward you, of your mother toward you, of your father toward you, of your grandparents toward you, and thus it is incumbent upon you to learn to requite their efforts in their time of need. When you were young, they cared for you. They fed you. They clothed you. They made sure you were safe. Some to a more degree, some to a lesser degree. But you're here. And now this widow has no means by which to provide for herself. And just as she once provided for you when you had no means by which to provide for yourself... Now you need to provide for her when she has no means to provide for herself. And this, Paul says, is both good and acceptable before God. This is what God wants of us. God has not ordained the church to be the first line of support in society. The first line of support by God's design is family. Then when family fails, either by necessity or by negligence then those within the church body may, under certain circumstances, look to the church as their means of support. And I say this carefully because Paul is going to teach this carefully. Even among those in need, Paul sets careful limitations on the burden that the body of Christ takes upon itself. We'll see that in a bit. So it is that first line of support that we find here within the family. Children, grandchildren, the responsibility falls upon you to care for your parents and your grandparents as they come to a point of need. Now, this does not mean that there are not times when the needs of your parents and grandparents go beyond that which you can offer. There are medical, there are physical complications, and sometimes this means that there are any number of reasons why a family needs to find some measure of assistance to help them in that endeavor. But, you know, we live in an age that's characterized by a complete disregard for authority and a lack of appreciation for familial obligation. We live in an age that is characterized by children who don't want to be inconvenienced by their parents as their parents get older, who are not willing to take upon themselves that responsibility that the scriptures reflect here, to take care of those who have taken care of them. We are no longer taught to appreciate family as once culture did. And we're taught instead that when family gets in the way of my aspirations, 
when, when something uh, uh, of, of a family obligation gets in the way of my desires, that I'm going to set aside those obligations or those responsibilities and pursue what I want to pursue and not let it get in my way. This becomes quite evident every time our church visits Parkview, the nursing home and care center. There are many who need to be there, and I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not saying everyone who's there is neglected. But there are, are, are a good number who are, whose families have chosen not to let their parents' age or their parents' frailty get in the way of their life. And this is a tragedy within our culture that we have to spend so much time concerned with our retirement plan. And it's even worked into parents' minds to the extent to where they say, I don't want to be a burden on you when I get older. Well, I can appreciate that my parents don't want to be a burden on me. And I can appreciate, I'm not, I'm not preaching against retirement plans or anything of the sort, okay? But that's my responsibility to care for them as they get older. I, I dare not allow the fact that my parents are planning for the future put me in a place where I'm setting aside my, my responsibility, doesn't matter how much money my parents have in the bank as they get older. Doesn't matter how, how well they plan for that, that time of retirement. I need to be there. And we'll see that as we continue. It is the spirit against which Paul speaks here. The spirit among family members which compels them to ignore the needs of their their family, particularly those who are, who are aging, to put them away due to any level of inconvenience they may cause, to refuse to requite the love and the effort that was put into them as children or grandchildren in the years of their need. And so within this context, Paul is teaching that it is first and fully expected that a widow would be provided for by her descendants. And if she has faithful descendants who honor and obey the Lord and are willing to care for her, then she, doesn't need to, then, then she does not fall under the definition of a widow indeed. She's a widow, but she's not a widow indeed, as the Bible would describe it here. One who is completely destitute and in need of the church stepping in. Because the church should expect, first and foremost, that the family is going to step in. That the family is going to do what is right. And we see this as we continue. Verses 5 and 6, the Bible says, Now she that is a widow indeed... And desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. We see another, several qualifications here of a widow indeed. So a widow indeed is a woman who does not have family to, to, to provide for her, but that's not it. Just because she doesn't have family, just because she's destitute of family, does not make her in itself a widow indeed. Paul goes on to say, first, First, she's alone. She's forsaken of those by whom God has designed or, or she does not have them. Maybe it's, it's not that her children have forsaken her. Maybe it's that uh, her children have passed before her. Or maybe it's that uh, she never had children and her husband is now dead. Or whatever it might be, there is a lack of family support there. Or maybe her, her family is entirely impoverished, right? And so they don't, don't even have the means by which to support her. So that's, that's, that's number one qualification. But second, the Bible says that she is a woman who is waiting 
upon the Lord. First, she's desolate. Second, she trusteth in God. This means she's determined to wholly and completely trust in the Lord to be her provision and to accept whatever the Lord might reserve for her. Uh, this could go in a couple of different directions. First, it might mean that she is determined um, that, that, that she's uh, of, of an age and a life situation, circumstance where she's not going to remarry. Um, and so she says, I'm, I'm in the Lord's hands at this point. And we'll see some of where that pl- or how that plays out uh, a little bit later on in the text. And the idea as well is that she trusting in God means that she's not uh, going into this situation with a bunch of, of qualifications. So in other words, we have a widow in the church and she's a widow indeed. She has no family to care for her and um, she uh, thus has no means by which to live. And she comes to us and says, I need help. And we say, well, well how, how can we help you? I see that you have no family. And she pulls out this list. She says, I've got, a, I've got a certain set of qualifications. I need to live this way. I need, I need this much money for, for this, and I need this much money for that, and I, I expect to eat these types of foods, and, and, and my, my, my 13 cats, they've all got to be fed, and they've all got to go to the vet. And, and, and all of a sudden, um, this is not someone who's trusting in the Lord and, and uh, accepting the provision that the Lord might have for her. This is someone who is demanding a paycheck, right? This is someone who is expecting something more than just her provision. Uh, she is expecting a continuation of a lifestyle. That is not consistent with a widow indeed. Third, we see here that she continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She is faithful. She is faithfully seeking the Lord. She is faithfully serving in the body. She is faithfully praying and relying upon the Lord. She is not someone who does not have a relationship with the body or with the Lord. She is not just someone. She is someone who is faithful to the Lord, who is trusting in the Lord, and who needs the help of God's people. This is the widow indeed. And Paul contrasts this woman with a very different kind of widow in verse 6. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. That word to live in pleasure, live luxuriously, given to pleasure. It it could speak of the pleasures of sin for a season or it could simply speak of the pleasures of this world. But one way or another, this woman who lives in pleasure, who is lavish, who expects to live a certain lifestyle or who lives in a manner that is wholly inconsistent with a relationship with the Lord who is living in open uh, sin or who is living in a lifestyle that is inconsistent with biblical principles. A woman who demands that whoever take care of her not just provide but be abundant to her to maintain a lifestyle, to maintain a perception, or to maintain whatever it might be. This is not the attitude of a person who is humble before the Lord, not the attitude of one who qualifies as a widow indeed. Now again, we can extend this beyond just the widow. We talk about supporting people. We talk about those in the body that need support. It's not just about whether or not they don't have support from any other means. Do they trust in the Lord? Are they willing to accept the Lord's provision? Or are they, or are they placing conditions upon this gift? Are they placing stipulations and expectations? Maybe they don't need help from the church then. Maybe, maybe the church is not called to support them then. Are they faithful? Are they continuing in prayer and supplication? Are they faithful to the body? Are they faithful to the Lord? Are they living in, in obedience? Do they have outward sin, outward rebellion? If, if, if they're not faithful, then maybe they don't, that may, may, maybe the church should not be supporting them. 
Maybe they don't meet those qualifications. That's how we can extend this principle. Paul expressed a principle of godliness as it relates to contentment in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Godly contentment calls us to a state whereby we are willing to accept the Lord's provision in the manner in which He chooses to give it to the extent that He chooses to give it. And that because we know that the Lord is watching, the Lord will care for us, And we are not, nor will we ever be overlooked or forsaken by the Lord. And thus we are are confident that the Lord will take care of us. The question of where and of how is always up in the air. But never the question of if. That's the spirit of the widow indeed. That's the spirit, this person who comes to the church and who is in need of help. And very similar to what Mordecai said to Esther when she said, but if the king does not raise his scepter to me when I come in unto him, he can have me killed. And Mordecai says, whether it is by you or by some other source, the Lord will deliver his people. But perhaps he has raised you up for such a time as this. The Lord will provide for his own. The Lord will provide for the widow indeed. The Lord will provide for that one in our midst who is in need of financial or or, or physical and material help. That's not the question. But the question is, has God raised us up to meet that need? And so we see these qualifications. We see these expectations. We see these layers of protection for the body of Christ that says, are they truly desolate? Second, Are they trusting in the Lord? Third, are they faithful to the Lord? And so the widow indeed is a woman whose husband has died, who has been forsaken of her family as those who bear the divine responsibility of caring for her, who is content to rely wholly upon the Lord, even at the expense of any expectations that she might have as it relates to her kind of lifestyle or her her decisions in those regards, and who maintains a faithfulness to the Lord and to His church throughout the process. Because that woman that lives in pleasure, that woman who will not abide a loss of luxury, who will not step outside of the choices that she's making, who will not change a lifestyle or cannot be content with what the Lord has chosen to give is, as Paul says, dead while she lives. This is strong language, but it reflects the kind of importance that God puts upon this issue. The woman who lives in godliness and contentment as a member of the body of Christ, that body needs to be deeply generous and, and in, in, implicitly, intentionally supportive. But just as I would not take a body part that has completely withered away and invest all of my time and effort into that body part, if I had a finger that lost circulation and it, went, it just died, completely just died, I would not spend my days investing in that finger any longer. The body is here. The widow is alive in the flesh, but she's dead. She's, she, she has no, she's not alive to the body. And that doesn't mean we count her as dead. It means she's not invested in the body. It means she's not 
she's not a part of the body. It means that she's not a functioning member of the body or she's not one who is in, in need of that qualification as it relates to her relationship to the body if, if perhaps, say, she has family that can support her. But in this case, we're talking about the one who lives in pleasure, the one who lives for herself, the one who lives in luxury or the one who lives in sin. She's dead while she liveth. She is not attached to the body in a way that, that, that should compel the body to help her. This woman, as it relates to widowhood and person, as the principle might be applied to other instances of support, is thus disqualified from qualification for support and is, as it were, considered dead though she lives. In other words, not the responsibility of the church. To this end, make no mistake, this is a serious issue. This is not just about money and help. This is about spirituality and faithfulness. The church, just because the church has money, does not mean it ought to be giving it all away. Contrary to popular opinion about the nature of the church, the church has no obligation biblically to invest in those who have not invested in her. No obligation to support those who are walking contrary to faithfulness to the Lord. The church is not a charity. That's an interesting concept because we are on paper listed by the government as a charity. But we're not. That's not what God designed the church to be. The church is to be charitable, but the church is not a charity. The church is a body. The body's function is not charity. The body is to live in love one toward another, charitably one toward another. But the Bible is under no biblical obligation to help people simply because they exist or simply because they ask or simply because they attend the church. The obligation as we see it reflected here is to those who are in need who are a part of the body. There are those who through inaction, through poor character, through lack of faithfulness to the Lord, invalidate themselves from the obligation which, which the church should and, and, and rightfully does otherwise feel in regard to them. So verse 7 says, These things give in charge that they may be blameless. The reason for this teaching, Paul says, is so that the church, they, may be blameless. Paul says to Timothy, tell the church these things so that the church can be blameless, so the church can be irreproachable, so that the church has a means by which to settle who should be supported and who should be not, so that people's feelings aren't hurt when they say, well, you supported her, but not her. Well, there's a reason. We have, we have reasons. The Word of God has given us clarity as to why this person is to be supported and that person is not. And that's okay, because we're not just running a charity here. We are giving money to those in the body who are in need of support for a particular time or a particular reason. We're not just handing out money as an equal opportunity lender. And we're not a bank. And we're not a charity in that sense. We are a body. We are a family. So Paul wants the church to be blameless, irreproachable, 
so that any reasonable person looking at the circumstances that has to do with support, reasonable believer, and those who have been supported would confidently say that the church did right according not to the perception of society or of individual people, but that the church did right according to sound doctrine. Paul wants the church to maintain a right testimony, to be blameless, and therefore he exhorts the church in these regards, giving them help to know where the lines are drawn, what limits there ought to be to their help and to their care, and even to help the church know how not to help others when it's not appropriate before the Lord for them to do so. We often call that enablement, right? When instead of helping someone, we're enabling them. We're allowing them to continue in their sin. We're allowing them to continue in their irresponsibility. We're allowing them to continue in their poor choices. We don't want to do that. And we're not obligated, according to the word of God, to do that. Now, these things get complicated, don't they? It's not always clear-cut to say, aha, this person's doing this or not doing that, therefore, yes or no. When we talk about emotions getting involved, when we talk about uh, mitigating or aggravating circumstances getting involved, those lines are not always clear. The line of of support versus enablement is not always clear. We live in a sin-sick world which twists and perverts everything it touches. And this is where we walk in the Spirit. This is where we have the multitude of counselors for safety. This is where... This is where we approach prayerfully, joyfully, with an open hand, but with care and discernment. And we do our best. So Paul says in verse 8, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for his own, uh, those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Make no mistake, we just talked about this idea that, that there are qualifications. We just talked about this idea that the church is not a charity. But this is not, none of those things are an excuse for us to close our hand. Because the faith, the deepest essence of the faith, as James would say, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world, to, to care for the innocent and the needy and to be spiritually pure. That's true religion. And so we're by no means saying here, and Paul is by no means saying here, you don't have to give. These are excuses for you not to give. These are all the reasons that you should not give. No, he's saying these are the reasons for you to be a good steward. These are the reasons for you to take care But the point is not, don't give. The point is, who should we be giving to? If all men don't provide for those over whom they have been called to provide, and Paul says, especially those of their own house, and this is that blood relation idea, going back to that. If a man does not provide for those of his own house, if a man is not willing to help those of his own house, he is living out a denial of the faith. And is worse, Paul says, than one who is an infidel. That word simply meaning one who is unfaithful, who is faithless, who has no trust in God. Once again, regard with me the the extreme seriousness of the words that Paul uses, the language that Paul imposes upon this text. Paul is talking about widows, right? And he says that when they live in pleasure, when they live in lavishness or they live in sin, they are dead while they live. Paul is talking about those who fail to care for their parents. 
Even here, by extension, failing to care for their grandparents. If we take the King James translation at face value, failing to care for their aunt, right? Or aunt, as it's set up here. And in doing so, they have denied something. They have failed to care and thus are worse than those who are deniers of the faith. Worse than infidels. By extension here, because Paul uses a superlative to talk about blood kin, it must also be said that those churches that refuse to care for those among them who are both godly and destitute would seem to fall within this context as well. We see a superlative, especially those of their own house, right? But anyone who does not care for those who are their own. When you invest in Legacy Baptist Church, you are a part of the church. You are our own. And for for us to fail, for the church to fail to invest in one another, spiritually or physically, is a measure of denial of the faith a denial of the very essence of what God has called us here to do. But particularly, those of their own house, for you not to provide for those of your own house, you've denied the faith. You're worse than an infidel. This is the the severity with which we see this mindset of care one for another, this mindset of spiritual requital that as God had appointed unto us parents and grandparents and they have taken a measure of steps to to fulfill that responsibility, whether they're believers or unbelievers, whether they did a good job or not, there's a spiritual requital that God expects whereby we requite those of our own house in kind. Paul then gets into more instructions related to the widow indeed, verses 9 and 10. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she hath relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. So Paul sets a few more standards here directly as it relates to widows. First, he says if she's under 60 years old, don't, she's not a widow indeed. Now again, this is a cultural thing. We might, we might be able to quibble about where we would draw that line today and how we would draw that line within our particular culture. But, but Paul says, don't take a widow in if she's under 60 years old. And she's been the wife, uh, and, and she's, uh, um, and we'll see why, because she can, she can marry again, and that would be Paul's exhortation in a minute. But he says, if she is over 60 years old, if she's over 60 years old, and if she's been the wife of only one husband, so she has not been a, a woman of, of promiscuity, if she's not um, uh, um, uh, married and divorced, married and divorced, married and divorced, but if she has been the wife of one husband, in the similar way that we see earlier in the qualifications of the, the bishops and deacons, the husband of one wife, if she's had a good testimony among the believers of her good works, if she has been a faithful mother to whatever children she may have had, if she has reflected the gospel as it relates to hospitality and service, she's lodged strangers, she's washed the saints' feet, speaking there of serving God and his people, relieving the afflicted, if she has invested and cared for the poor and the needy to the extent that she has. In other words, what you're looking for, a widow indeed, this faithful woman, this woman that trusts in the Lord, it's going to be evident. And it's going to be evident in her deportment. She, this is not going to be a woman who just joins the body, 
just sits there in the seat. Nobody really knows anything about her, but she's never caused trouble, so she's a widow indeed. We're talking about a woman who is, re- who is reflecting the gospel. When a woman, she's over 60 years old, in other words, she's kind of beyond that time of, uh, of, of marrying and settling down into a new marriage. So she's in need there. And she has reflected a testimony of love and care for the brethren and of love and care for God. This is the kind of woman that God says, this is, this is the obligation. This is where the obligation comes in. If she's been a faithful believer with a strong testimony of obedience to the gospel, then she's worthy of being fully supported by the church in the latter years of her widowhood. Now, as we consider these qualifications, we understand them to be reflections of the spiritual condition of this woman, not a direct checklist, right? We wouldn't go around with a list and, a, and, and if, if a, a widow in our church needed help and she was 59 years old, we're like, ah, oh, man, I guess, I guess you're just going to have to starve in your home because you're 59. That's, that's not it, right? Or, well, you know, you're godly, check, and you've done good works, check, and you've brought up children, check, and you've lodged strangers, check. Have you ever washed anyone's feet? No? Okay, well then, I guess you're going to... That, that's not the spirit of this, right? We're talking about the spirit of the woman, her faithfulness to the gospel, to Christ, and to his church. Paul then speaks to those women who are younger widows. He says in verses 11 through 15, But the younger widows refuse. For when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation, because they have cast off their first faith. And withal they have learned to be idle, wandering from house to house. And not only idle, but tattlers and also busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, and guide the house. Give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Notice how much this is again about testimony. For some are already turned aside after Satan. And and, and you see the strength of the language here as it relates to these things once again. He says, if a woman is under, if she's younger than 60 years old, and that because she is yet full of life and full of vigor, she should remarry rather than go into this state of perpetual widowhood, rather than go into this state whereby the, the, the church is supporting her and she is going to spend her, her days and her nights in, in, in prayer and in fasting and in, in, in perpetual widowhood. Much to the rather, Paul says they need to marry. Younger women need to remarry. And they need to remarry because, because they're so full of life and vigor still. The idea of, of living that life of faithfulness and contemplation, that life of, of prayer, that life of dedication to the Lord and to his church in the manner that would be asked of a widow who is being cared for by the church, this would be incompatible with her season of life. And she would become idle. And Paul speaks here by experience, he says. There are some who have already done this. And he says they wax wanton against Christ. They say, yep, I'm just going to devote myself to Christ. And then they get antsy. And they get, they want to go do something. They've still got a lot of life to live. And then they marry. And then they've cast off their first faith because they have gone outside of the realm of that which they had intended and vowed. Paul says this is a recipe for spiritual disaster because they'll seek after the things of this life and begin to live in pleasure. And as we've already seen, she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. So the church, through its generosity and charity, would put these women into a path of spiritual danger if they're not careful. And this is a warning to the church as it relates to how it is that we give to others. We dare not give to others in a manner that will lead them into a path of spiritual danger. 
We dare not give to others in a manner that is going to cause them to wax wanton against Christ. We need to see. The wise man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. We need to look ahead and we need to say, how is this arrangement going to work for them? Is this appropriate? Do they have the right spirit about them? Are they ready for this? Or is such a circumstance whereby the church is going to invest so heavily in someone and they are going to live by, 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 by the extension of the goodness of, of, of the Lord to the church, is that going to cause them to simply have too much time on their hands? Is it going to cause them to become idle? And Paul describes here of those who were in the church and through the generosity and charity of the church were put into this path of spiritual danger, that they became discontent with the simple life the church could provide or that was called upon them. And then at the last, they pursued a husband simply for the lifestyle that they could afford. And they become idle and they become busybodies and they become gossips because they have nothing better to do with their time. So they go from house to house and they gossip all day because they're not being asked to do anything because they don't have any responsibilities to fulfill. And they don't have the spiritual maturity to be rooted strongly in it. And so they become idle and busybody and gossips. And to this end, Paul exhorts the younger women not to be taken into the church in this way, but rather to marry, to have children, to guide a household, to keep herself busy in the manner that becomes a woman, lest she become a negative testimony to the church by being brought into the church, by being provided fully for, by the church, by being cared for, and then by at some point casting a, a tremendously negative testimony on the church through her actions, through her idleness, through, her, through, through, through tattling, through becoming a busybody, by waxing wanton against Christ, as the text describes it. Paul says that there are already some women in the church who had been that way, who had, who had turned aside. And he says they've turned aside after Satan. They've turned aside after those things that define Satan's kingdom, not Christ's kingdom, that defines the world, not the church. And this is a warning. This is a warning to us in our support as well. God forbid that our, our support should, with a measurable level of discernment, being able to see ahead and, and, and perhaps having seen it, that our support should cause someone to feel at liberty to then pursue the baser elements of their nature. Now, sometimes these things happen inadvertently, right? You do the best you can. People take advantage. God forbid that we should close our hand because we're afraid of such things. But these are considerations that the church needs to have when they are considering support. Am I just leaving a person to be idle, to wax wanton against Christ by my help? Or is my help going toward the proper means for the proper time for the proper reason. And so Paul finishes this instruction in, in, in part in verse 16. He says, If any man or woman that believeth hath, have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. So he comes back to this idea for the third time now. He has mentioned it. If you're a believer and you have a widow, if you're a believing son or a believing grandson or a believing person and you have a widow in your family and they need help, you relieve them. You take care of them. Don't place that upon the responsibility of the church. And that being so that the church may give their attention to those who truly need it, who are widows indeed, 
who are in the place where they have no other means and they need it. So that the church's resources are not stretched so thin that they can't actually help the widow indeed because they're helping someone that doesn't need to be helped by the church. They could have been helped by believers who are, are directly responsible, who are those of their own house. Now I said next week we're going to come back to this passage and we're going to speak specifically about some of those elements of idleness, tattling, busybody, and we're going to talk about those directly. But for this week, our application draws us to the nature of both the family and the church's role as it relates to support. And point number one in our application this morning is this. The church as a spiritual family does not invalidate God's expectation for a blood family to support one another. We have seen the strong words that Paul has used throughout this passage in regarding to the obligation of kin, of family. We've mentioned already the unique time within which our culture resides, the fruit of decades of cultural deterioration, which have emphasized self above anything else. Follow your dreams. That philosophy, that when it leads to its end, says, wait a minute, my parents spent all these years telling me to follow my dreams, and now they're the thing standing in the way of my dreams. I'm going to follow my dreams. Sorry, parents. Go live in that dark corner and be cared for by other people. We live in a culture that emphasizes convenience over responsibility. So much so that because a child is inconvenient, that child can be killed in the womb simply so that the parent does not have to deal with raising it. So much so that the idea of euthanasia is becoming popular around the world. That as soon as somebody becomes a, a non-contributor to society, either by age or by, by illness, they should be killed so that they do not drag society down there, so that they are not inconvenient to society. We are in a culture that de-emphasizes accountability and honor and self-sacrifice. And all of this has led to the condition within which our culture finds itself today, where, where the weak and the vulnerable of our society are seen as inconvenience and annoyance and a hindrance rather than as a special blessing or as a responsibility to be cared for. And now the people that are classified as weak and vulnerable in our society are the ones that have classified themselves as such. And so the weak and the vulnerable in society are now the sodomites or the transgender or women by virtue of the fact that they're women, or black people by virtue of the fact that they have more melanin in their skin, or whatever it might be. And so the victims, the weak, have become simply the oppressed rather than those who are in no way able to help themselves. We've rationalized in our mind that we're still helping the oppressed and the weak because we're helping these classes of society while simultaneously allowing that to dull our conscience as to those who are truly innocent and helpless in our society who are being cast out because they're inconvenient. This ought not be so. Within the church, the elders among us ought to hold a position of honor, the scriptures say, 
And so too, parents hold a position of honor within the family. Kings hold a position of honor within government. Those who are needy ought to hold a position of honor. Those who are innocent ought to hold a position of honor. The widows and the orphans, as James describes it, ought to hold a position of honor, of care. We honor the widows. We honor the elders in our church because of the vast amount of experience they have that they can lend. We honor the elders in our church because of the time that they have invested in us. Because of the time parents and grandparents have invested in children and grandchildren. Because of the time that, that, that some in this church have invested in the, in, in, in the younger people of this church as it relates to spiritual things. And on the authority of God's word, families... For we who have received from our parents and our grandparents to forsake them in their time of need, it's not simply wrong. It is faithless. It is to requite evil for good. Now again, we temper this with practicality. You don't have 24-hour medical equipment in your home, right? You don't have round-the-clock doctors in your home. There are times and circumstances where things are taken out of our hands, at least to some degree, because of the necessities of the medical needs or whatever the case may be that are laid upon us. But even among those who must, for their own health or wellness, have a greater element of care or degree of care than can be taken care of in the home, that does not mean that there's no responsibility to those loved ones. I mentioned already Parkview. There's any number of men and women that we minister to, those dear men and women who we need to take care of uh, and, and, and uh, who need to be taken care of in that medical setting. But should our parents or our grandparents find ourselves in such a setting, we dare not abandon them there. We dare not just leave them there. There's still any number of ways that we can invest in them, and we ought to. God forbid that we should be a part of such negligence for our families. God forbid that the church should ever have to step in because a family among us has failed to requite their loved ones in their latter years. Now to the church. The church as spiritual family should support those members who don't have blood family to support them otherwise and reflect the proper testimony of Christian faithfulness and contentment. The nature of church support is a difficult issue, isn't it? Money always brings with it complications because material things have the capacity to cloud judgment. We've spoken of this already in 1 Timothy. We'll see it again as we transition into chapter 6. Money has a way of clouding judgment. Money has a way of causing offenses. Money has a way of dividing those who otherwise greatly love and respect each other. Money can tear families apart. Money can tear homes apart. Money can tear churches apart. And it has. And when it comes to serving our Lord, money is truly a non-issue to the church, right? If God wants this church to be here, he will provide for his church. 
Now that doesn't mean if I run away with everything in the bank account, you know, that it doesn't work that way, right? I can just keep siphoning off the top because God is going to provide for his church. No, but if God wants this church to be here, God will provide for his churches. We're good stewards. Money's never been an issue for the church. If, if God needs someone provided for, God will provide for them. If God calls the church to give money to someone, then that money is going to be there for the church to give. This is a non-issue. We know that. God doesn't need our money to help him do his work. God is perfectly capable of taking care of his people. The scriptures tell us in Psalm 50 verse 10 that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's a lot of hills. And again in verse 12, he says, If he were hungry, he would not tell us, because the world is his and the fullness thereof. Right? But God has chosen to use his people. And by the way, he blesses us for it. God has chosen to use the people's gifts, their offerings, their diligence to be a blessing, so that God's people do not lack. For a properly spiritual church, the issue of supporting a person who is family or supporting a family who is family, it's not about money. If it's about money, there's a problem already. It's about faithfulness to the Lord, and that's what Paul is reflecting here. Notice Paul never brings up how much money do you have in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. He doesn't say, if you have the money, support a widow who is a widow indeed. Money's a non-issue there because it's a non-issue. God will take care of that. The question is, are we doing what God would have us to do? Are we aligned with God properly? Are we aligned with his word properly? And this is why 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 16 is so helpful. Not simply as it relates to widows, but as general principles of how the church invests the material things that it has into the material lives of those that are here. First, we understand that the church is not intended to be the first line of support. As we've just discussed, it is fully the first responsibility of family to take care of their own. This is the will of the Lord, and it is upon the recognition that family is not going to lend their support or cannot for one reason or another. It's not to say that it's always a denial of the faith. There are any number of reasons why family may not be able to help, and we understand that. We regard that. But it is at that time that the church then can enter into the discussion. And this brings us back to a concept that we spoke about some time ago as it relates to various realms of authority and God, uh, as it relates to, to God's designed institutions. I put up a chart a while ago which reminds us of God's design and civil government of family and of church. That each institution which has been designed and ordained by God has been given responsibilities and accountability. Within this chart, we place the nurture of the next generation squarely within the realm of familial authority. Our study this week adds to that responsibility of familial authority the physical care one for another. Directly within our context, the care of widows would be a family issue. But when the family fails or cannot uh, accomplish their obligation for one reason or another, that is when we see within our little diagram here the overlap. A widow indeed would rest right there. Where she still has, there's still a responsibility of her family, but for one reason or another, the family cannot meet that obligation or will not meet that obligation. 
And so the church steps in to do for her what the family could or would not do for her. If there is a widow in our midst whose family has abrogated their responsibility or cannot accomplish it, then if the other conditions are met, the church should take upon that mantle. And that brings us to these other conditions. That there's a definitive set of spiritual qualifications as it relates to material giving. The church is under no obligation to give to people who don't love the Lord and don't love the church. Just because a person walks through this door does not mean the church is obliged to give anything to them. Can we? Yes. Maybe should we? Quite, quite possibly. But do we need to feel an obligation for a person who has no regard for the Lord and no regard for, the, for, for this church to come in here and to, to open our hand to them uh, regularly and generously? Not necessarily. Paul laid down a clear testimony of faithfulness as an expectation here. It's not right that those with marginal relationships to the church should feel entitled to the church's material investment. It's not right that the church should feel or be obligated to those who do not have a right testimony before the Lord or who shame the Lord in their actions or testimony. Those into whom the church invests are attached to the church in a deeply meaningful way. And that attachment, that investment is a gift from the Lord which he desires upon those who serve him faithfully. Upon those who will not use the gifts and blessings as a weapon against the church or against others, or waste these blessings through poor poor stewardship, but God desires these blessings to be upon those who are right with him. Now, I'm not talking here about the church starting charitable endeavors. You start an evangelistic effort, you raise up a food shelf, you, you have a benevolence fund so that you can reach people who are in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's an entirely different issue than what we're talking about today. That's the church investing their funds in evangelism. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about support, okay? We see Paul speak not only of Christian faithfulness here, but also Christian contentment, that the character of the recipient is never entitled, that the widow or otherwise does not have a mindset of lavishness or living in pleasure, that they're living off of the sacrifices of others, and so the character of the one who should receive these gifts is the character of one who has learned to be content, who has learned to be a good steward of what they have because they are living off of the sacrifices of others. And those whose faithfulness to the Lord and to his church is not dependent upon their gifts to her, that's the person who's entitled to those gifts. So what we find here is instruction for a careful, protected ministry intended to free the church to serve and bless without fear, but also with clear guidelines so that the church is well accounted for, so that the church remains above reproach, and so that those who are recipients of the church's gifts also live in a manner that is above reproach. It's intended to protect the church from those who would seek to take advantage of her, to fleece her. Whenever the church intersects with the things of this world, Whenever the church intersects with money, whenever the church intersects with property, whenever the church intersects with fungible assets, things get muddy, don't they? And the more a church owns, the more muddy things get. It's inevitable that the church must interact with such things because we live in a material world. And it is for this reason that the church must be clear and the church must be careful 
The church must be humble. The church must stay spiritual. The church must walk in the Spirit, must be led of the Spirit. The church must ordain good leaders. The church must maintain a submission one to another. Because if there's humility all around, if there's love all around, if there's discernment, if there's care, if there's obedience, then God's best can be realized and that should be our goal. If there's care, if there's humility, if there's obedience, then God's church can remain above reproach while simultaneously helping those that need help. And that's what we want. Anytime the church interacts with money and with assets and with these things, uh, just speak from the heart for a moment. I feel like I have to go home and take a shower. <laughs> I don't like it. I n- it's never fun when the church in a business meeting has to talk about money. It's like, that's not what we're here for, right? But it is a part of what it means to be a church. That we are a source through which God can bless and help others. So we need to make sure we do it right. We need to make sure we do it carefully. We need to make sure we do it lovingly. We need to make sure it's not about the money but it's about the Lord. Not about the money, but about the lives into whom we're investing. Not about the money, but about the testimony of God's church before the world. If we can do that, then we'll stay in a good place. May God help us to be there. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.